0: This is Exactly Right. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a journalist, author, and podcast host. And I'm Paul Holes, a retired investigator with experience solving some of America's most notorious cold cases. Together, we host Buried Bones, a historical true crime podcast on the Exactly Right Network. Each week, we examine a different case from history and use our years of experience and 21st century forensics to bring new insights into these very old tragedies. Like the time the Sausage King of Chicago's wife went missing in 1897. Don't miss new episodes every Wednesday. Follow Buried Bones wherever you get your podcasts. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. There's some hidden back there. It always happens to me. Was it a change? Sounds like a I'm with Gerald and Hillary Fox and their granddaughter Meg Edwards in Berkhamsted, England. We're exploring the grounds of the Quaker meeting house where John Tall would meet with fellow Quakers later in his life. The small cemetery there is well kept, but we're hoping to look at the little lawn in the back. For a small village, Berkhamstead has a lot of construction today, so it's hard to talk. So I wonder if this is all original. Well, this is in
1: 1918. What is it? The building was made in 1918. Oh, is
0: 18, it's George's. I think there was there was a shadow or something, maybe the eighth. Look like a nine, yeah, yeah, but it's 18. I just am struck by how modest this is compared to the church. I mean, it's amazing. They, that is the
1: thing with Quake, it's very, very simple.
0: This meeting house and its property is so important because John Tall would stroll these same grounds more than 170 years earlier. No amount of research in an archive can replace that, but I can't always control the environment. Yes, it was too noisy, so I tried to move to another location further in the back by the bushes, but no luck. None of this is working out, and perhaps I've received an omen because I got my first injury on the job. Oh, I grabbed a bush over there and it. Oh. Yeah, it's okay. I was trying to move. But this are thorny. Is it bleeding? It's okay. It stings. See, it's... Oh, I wonder if there's something in there.
1: See it? Yeah. got a thorn, Gerald. You're good at thorns, though. It looks like you caught something. Yes, there is a thorn there. Oh. You need tweezers to get it out.
0: I have tweezers at home, but yeah. you're both sweet. Thank you. <laughs> After I recovered from the thorn, I left the meeting house with the foxes and Meg. Now we need to go back in time and actually leave the country. John Tall's story continues in Australia in 1823. By then, John Tall, the convicted forger and suspected thief, had been building a lovely life in a penal colony in Sydney for almost a decade. He had established the first Quaker house in the country. He sat on the board of a bank. His pharmacies and various real estate deals led to a lucrative importing-exporting business, and Tall's family lived in a lovely home. That year, he had sent for his wife, Mary, and his two sons, John and William. Little is known about the young men, but Tall's great-great-granddaughter, Hilary Fox, has done a bit of research on their life in Australia. The boys were
1: educated at Dr. Halloran's Sydney Grammar School. In 1824, William Henry won a book prize and John Downing a silver medal for
2: Latin.
0: Five years later, the country's census gave details about John Tall's pharmacy business and his other son, John Jr. In 1828,
1: Ambrose Foss bought the business. By the time of that year's census, retired apothecary John Tall was living in Castle Rear Street with his wife and their 17-year-old younger son, William. John Jr. was in England studying in medicine. That was the only reference I've ever seen for those... Children.
0: Clearly, both of the younger, tall men were bright, and their father had expected much of them. That's what their education tells us. Tall's 14-year prison sentence expired in 1828. And author Carol Baxter says he could have taken the family back to England immediately. I asked Carol when most people who were convicted of crimes were allowed to leave the penal colony. Was it when they served out their sentence?
3: They had different ways of ending a sentence. Your sentence could be time expired, in which case with a seven year or a 14 year sentence, once the sentence expired, yes, you were free to do whatever you wanted, but you would have to pay your passage back to the UK. And most of them didn't have enough money to pay their passage. So essentially it was a life sentence.
0: But Tall did have the money to leave and yet he stayed for another 10 years because he was so successful in Australia. But by 1838, it was time to return to England, finally. The Tall's packed up their belongings. And John and his family actually went
3: back to the UK.
0: For the return trip, the Tall's traveled aboard a much nicer ship than the one John Tall had taken to Australia two decades before. John Tall was returning to England wealthier than before, much wealthier and more confident, but still sneaky. He had become a significant figure in Quakerism in Australia after he had been cast out by the Quakers in England. So now the question was, would he return to the Quakers when he got home? He'd really only
3: just been accepted when he was booted out. The astonishing thing, though, is after a short time of absence where he got over his humiliation, he licked his wounds, so to speak, he went back. And that is extraordinary. He went back and attended their services.
0: Carol Baxter is very skeptical about Tall's commitment to Quakerism. She thinks it was just a shield against the suspicion around his suspicious behavior.
3: He continued wearing their attire because, again, the attire was the mask that told everyone he was a good man. And it hid the fact that underneath he really wasn't so good. He was a classic Jekyll and Hyde character, really.
0: But historian Esther Zala isn't so sure. She's surprised that he continued to be committed to Quakerism.
1: What I find really interesting is that he would want to. People do still in this period move in and out of different denominations of different religions quite flexibly. Right? You can stay with one religion for a few years and then you change and you do something else. So he does seem to have identified very strongly with, with Quakerism.
0: So Tall had many religions to choose from, yet he returned to the group that had rejected him. Perhaps he thought that his wealth would change things and his status would be resurrected, but it wasn't. The Talls were once again allowed to attend meetings at the Quaker House, but they weren't officially members. That must have been so humiliating for him. But it would get so much worse. Death was coming for the people closest to him, both from illness and murder.
3: Unfortunately, it was the time of things like the cholera epidemic, which ravaged, of course, many parts of London and things. Tuberculosis was such a problem. Did you know that in the 200 years between 1800 and 2000, tuberculosis killed one billion people in the Earth's population? One seventh of the world's population were killed by tuberculosis.
0: Crime historian Angela Buckley says people in Victorian England were frightened of contracting deadly diseases like tuberculosis.
2: I've been doing some work in Manchester on, on this, on quack doctors, and the mortality rate around this time was, was aged 18 for working-class people. So people were terrified about their health, and they were terrified about catching cholera or typhus or dysentery, you know, that would just wipe them out, wipe out communities.
0: Tuberculosis, again. The disease was also called consumption. John Tall had gotten it in Australia, probably at the hospital where he worked. He had been really sick. Consumption was incredibly contagious. Every cough emitted a spray of the disease, which was targeting another host. And now tuberculosis was spreading across England.
3: TB was a big part of John's life. John's younger son, William, got TB and succumbed to it.
0: Just like that. William was gone. His father seemed devastated. And then just a few months after returning from Australia, John Tall's wife, Mary, and John Jr. also developed that same cough, and chest pain, and fever.
3: His wife, Mary, also had TB, and his elder son at some point acquired TB. And the doctors advised them to return to Australia because the environment was better. For a TB patient. So they came out to Australia and they were back in New South Wales.
0: But despite the change in climate, Mary continued to struggle with TB, as did Tall's son. Tall seemed to care for them both deeply, as illustrated by his willingness to return to Australia. He could be loving at times, but other times, he was terrible. John Jr. was still struggling with tuberculosis when he had a conflict with his father, and John Tall reacted cruelly.
3: His eldest son, he treated in many ways quite appallingly, So the guy was suffering from TB, and he went to his father's place to plead for money or whatever. And they found him actually out in the street, on the ground, literally on the ground. His father wouldn't let him in. So he was a very hard man.
0: It didn't help his mood that the Australian climate seemed to have little effect on Mary and their son's illness. Soon, John Jr. died. It was a dark time for them, and Hall no longer had his businesses in Australia, so he and Mary decided to return to England once again, for the second time in less than a year.
3: John started to sell everything. He'd sold his pharmacy before this, back in the late 20s, and he started to sell everything up with the idea of returning to the UK and not coming back.
0: The Talls traveled back home with their family even smaller.
3: John returned to London and they rented out a very exclusive property near Madame Tussauds.
0: Tuberculosis could have killed John Tall. It had taken the lives of both of his children. And now, back in England, his wife continued her battle with the disease. He began treating Mary with medicines. Remember, he was an excellent druggist. I told Meg Edwards that I thought this was a pretty big sacrifice for Tall to make because TB was so contagious and he risked getting sick again. But she didn't quite see it that way.
4: Again, this is another thing of, I think it probably made sense to him. Whether it's convenience or whether it's maybe a little bit of arrogance, he probably thought he was the best person for the job to look after her. He knew what he was talking about to an extent. He certainly knew where to find Particularly medicines, he looked after her to the point of where it made sense to bring in other people.
0: John Tall's wife seemed to be dying, and he continued to oversee her treatment. Eventually, her illness would set off a chain of events that would end in murder. But it's definitely not what you think. John Tall needed to make an income in London, and he couldn't afford to catch tuberculosis from Mary, so he made a decision that would change the direction of his life. He asked a friend for a recommendation for some professional help. They brought
4: in a nursemaid to look after his wife.
0: Meg Edwards says the woman was bright and reliable.
4: He brings in Sarah Hart, who is a a young nurse who's been recommended to him.
0: Sarah would take care of Mary as she struggled with TB, allowing John to work. This might seem like a cliché setup, a man bringing in a younger woman to help his dying wife. It doesn't sound like it'll go very well. But Carol Baxter says Sarah didn't seem to have any ulterior motives.
3: She wasn't the gold digger type at all, fluttering her eyelashes. I think she was just a sweet person, so I just got the sense of her as being a genuinely nice, caring person who was the ideal person to act as a
0: nurse. And though he was about 30 years her senior, John Tall was attractive. He had a nice house, a good income, and he seemed kind. He would make an excellent husband. But still, at this point, it seemed innocent on both their parts— Carol Baxter thinks that too.
3: I had no sense of him having cheated on his wife, and I can't imagine that Sarah would have done that either. I thought she had morality and integrity, so I think she was a decent human being.
0: It was late 1838, just a few months after the Talls had returned from Australia for the second time. Sarah Hart cared for Mary Tall while her husband gave his wife medicine. Caring for someone with TB was a dangerous job for both of them. Medical researchers in the early 1800s didn't quite understand how tuberculosis worked.
2: The
3: problem was, in those days, they didn't realize that TB was a bacterial infection. So they didn't realize that every cough or sneeze sent sprays of millions of TB into the air. Western medicine really only came into its own from probably the 1850s onwards.
0: There was a lot of herbal medicine in the 1800s. Through
3: herbs and other things, they did manage to solve a lot of medical problems. With the development of Western medicine, they started to understand germ theory and they understood how tuberculosis was passed on from one person to another. So there probably wasn't the same sense of contracting it as a nurse because they didn't understand how it was transmitted.
0: Sarah Hart took diligent care of Mary, but eventually, tuberculosis proved to be too much for Mary's body. She died in December of 1838. John Tall seemed to mourn his wife's death. Despite the prevalence of death from disease in Victorian England, it still felt like a shock. Just a short while before, he had been a family man, and now he was without a wife and without both of his sons. So after Mary died, John Tall did what so many people do when they find themselves drifting through life, alone. He turned to the closest person to him, He and Sarah Hart, his wife's nurse, soon began an affair that lasted for years.
3: So I think it was probably in the aftermath of Mary's death, where John was probably very lonely because he was a convict returned to England with wealth and money.
0: Tall had been respected in Australia, but in England, he wasn't high society anymore like he had hoped to be. The Quakers
3: were letting him in, but he still wasn't accepted as a Quaker. The the people he associated with, from a business point of view, knew his background. His financial situation was heavily tied up with the import-export business. And to do that, he needed to go down to the coffee shops where he got the newspapers and he met with the shipping agents. And of course, they all knew he was a transported convict. So he had that indelible stain on him.
0: So you think he was lonely?
3: And Sarah was probably lonely too. And Sarah was available and things just happened. From the dates of birth of the children, I got no sense of anything possibly happening beforehand.
0: What did Sarah Hart see in John Tall? She was probably
3: so sweet and perhaps she saw John in the aftermath of his wife's death where she stayed on as his housekeeper. Perhaps she saw him as stepping stone to marriage.
0: So they ended up in a period of what, two years where they have these two children or is it even longer than that?
3: Not much more than two years. They were pretty close one after another. A boy, Alfred, and then a little girl, Sarah
0: this wasn't a fling. This relationship, if you could call it that, went on for seven years. But if Sarah Hart were thinking of marrying John Tall, it was wishful thinking.
3: I can't possibly see that he would ever have considered marrying Sarah. She didn't offer him anything. He wanted to succeed professionally and with the Quakers. And she wasn't the sort of person who offered him money Opportunity or anything else. So, no, I cannot possibly see him as ever having wanted to marry
0: her. Sarah was attractive and kind, but she had no standing in the community. She could do nothing to elevate him with the Quakers. He would never marry her. But John Tall did provide for Sarah and their two children.
3: He started off with them being in London and he moved them around a couple of places in London.
0: Tall didn't abandon them as many men would, but that's not saying much. Though he did visit them regularly and had meals with them. He and Sarah Hart carried on their affair, but Sarah was told to stay quiet about their relationship. She and the kids had to remain a secret. Tall couldn't risk his other life being exposed to the Quaker's. He had recently been invited back, not as a member, but he was welcome to attend meetings despite his dubious past. So Tall agreed to keep Sarah and the children in a secret home. He paid her child support, which was a modest amount, one pound a week. But he was very clear. She must stay silent. Discretion was expected, and disobedience would not be tolerated. Away from Sarah Hart and the children, John Tall searched for a new life.
3: I mean, they say most men marry within a year of their wife's death because I'm, I'm never quite sure whether it's for sex or whether it's for a cook, or whether it's just they're not capable of being on their own. I'm I'm not quite sure. Women seem to not have that same need to marry. And so maybe, in a sense, Sarah, because she was his housekeeper, she provided all those means, you know, the bed and board sort of thing. She cooked, she cleaned, she filled his bed.
0: After Mary's death, Tall's affair with Sarah Hart wouldn't stop him from marrying someone other than her, he needed someone who could help him both financially and in the Quaker society. The year following his first wife's death, he found her, despite secretly sleeping with his former nurse. Sarah Appleby was attractive, kind, and bright, and a birthright Quaker. They met in Berkhamstead, where I've been visiting with Hillary and Gerald and Meg. I asked crime historian Angela Buckley about that area in the mid-1800s.
2: It would be quite rural, yeah, absolutely. Mostly farming communities, um, small market towns. So, quite a big difference, actually, if you've been successful building pharmacies, you know, creating a, a chain or, or creating a business. To go back to Berkhamsted would be quite sleepy.
0: Sarah Appleby might have lived a simple life away from London, but she had higher ambitions. She
3: was a very smart, capable woman, and she met his intellectual aspiration she was also a quaker so she met his quaker aspirations as well she would help him get back into the
4: fold so to speak she was very respectable she was from a very good quote unquote quaker family quaker home
0: I asked Carol Baxter why such a seemingly wonderful woman would marry John Tall. I didn't understand why that would happen. He's been disowned. He's been sent to a penal colony. He's struggling financially. She doesn't know about Sarah, number one, but what would possess a woman who clearly brings something to the table to take this man when there are probably other nice Quaker men around?
3: You're right. There must have been something for him to appeal to that sort of a person. Again, I guess he must have had that that mask because she clearly loved him. I mean, we've got letters and things to him and they were clearly devoted to each other.
0: So he really did have two sides.
3: I guess he was split, you know, very much split in terms of who he was, the Jekyll and Hyde character. The Dr. Jekyll is the nice side of him, and that was the Dr. Jekyll side that saw and appealed to Sarah Appleby. It was the Mr. Hyde side that was the Sarah Hart side.
0: Meg Edwards says there might be a simpler explanation—
4: You know, she's been married before and she has a child. That certainly adds an interesting element of perhaps that's why she it wasn't quite so big of a leap to to marry a Quaker who was out of favor.
0: Sarah Appleby also had ambitions. When she met John Tall in 1839, she was teaching young girls to help them become self-sufficient
4: women. She was setting up a school at the time for young girls, for women. Women's education in the early 19th century was not a given. I think that's one of the things that attracted her to John was that he was had similar values of, of championing women's education. Yeah, so she was clearly at, a, at an interesting time in her life setting up the school in Burkhamstead and that's when they met and they got married. He was very much flip flopping in and out of the of the Quaker church, in and out of the Quaker favour.
0: Sarah Appleby's school in Berkhamstead was a boarding school and a day school. Historian Angela Buckley says Appleby was a pioneer in the area of women's education.
2: Well, nobody was required to be educated until 1870, you know, it wasn't statutory to 1870 anyway. And if usually, if anybody was educated, it would be boys. And the kind of things that would be open for girls would be things like industrial schools or places where girls, you know, who perhaps uh, live a precarious existence or younger married mothers, those kind of girls are not usually a boarding school, unless it was, again, for
4: profit.
0: And John Tall seemed very supportive of his wife's venture.
4: His values were, on the surface at least, very in line with the with the Quaker values of philanthropy and giving and education, particularly women's education, which is where he came into his wife Sarah's life when she was setting up the school in Berkhamsted.
0: The Talls lived in a building which still stands. It was called the Red House. It's now the Red and White House. Hillary and Gerald and Meg took me there during our tour of Berkhamsted. So tell me the the history, this is where Tall lived?
1: Yes, this is where Sarah Tall had her school. And um, I think he must have decided she she would be a very good prospect to marry. He ingratiated himself in the town. He, He liked the respect he was getting for walking about in the Quaker garb. Did he have this entire house that you know? Of? Well, yes, I think so because it was um, a
0: business. I was impressed with its size. Well, this is a, a much bigger house than I thought it would be. I'll take some pictures here in a minute. Yes, because yes. this is this is very large. How
1: many children did they have when they lived in this house? Um, Sarah had her daughter from her previous marriage, Eliza, and then they had two of their own. Okay. And then they had all the boarders and the day pupils, up to 12 years old they were, so so it was a big concern.
0: Was that a successful business?
1: Yes, I believe so.
0: It's clear from the size of the Red House that Sarah Appleby must have been successful with her school because her husband was not especially successful with his import-export business.
4: What is amazing is that she clearly was the more successful one of the two, or she was certainly self-sufficient to an extent, and under the backdrop of 19th century England, incredibly successful for a woman.
0: And he was bringing money to Sarah Hart and their kids every six weeks, which continued to be a financial strain. Once Tall married Sarah Appleby, Sarah Hart and their children became a bit more worrisome. But John Tall kept more than a few secrets from his wife.
3: So she didn't realise there were the financial problems. And the financial problems really only started around this time. There, there was an economic depression in Australia. Well, most of his finances were tied up with land over there and import exporting. And, of course, if you've got a drought, you know, which is typical of our problems, there are issues then with the sheep and cattle and making money off them because of course, they die because they haven't got any fodder. For what years... He started in as the early 40s continued, probably about 42, 43. That was when he really started to have financial problems. And he married the second wife in 1841.
0: John Tall was sneaky, subtly sneaky, even with his new wife.
3: She didn't know he was struggling financially. She made a very good prenup agreement that benefited her and her daughter.
0: They had prenup agreements?
3: Not... Not described in that way. I mean, essentially, we're looking at the old dowry sort of situation. He agreed in writing to support them, blah, blah, blah. But in fact, he never actually acted on it. He was going to protect his money.
0: Tall was having problems with his business. He owed money in England. His new wife, Sarah Appleby, was supporting them financially. And his mistress and their two children were becoming more expensive living in the city. Tall soon decided that Sarah Hart... Alfred, and little Sarah needed to move to the countryside and away from London, where he might be spotted by business associates. With his marriage to Sarah Appleby, John Tall had a lot to lose. They had children together too, and now the financial pressure pressed on him.
3: He eventually decided that there were some risks of having them in London, and that's when he sent her out to Slough initially, and then out to Salt Hill, which is not far from Slough. And Slough, for those who don't know, is not far from Windsor Castle.
0: Tall rented Sarah and the children a cottage in the village of Slough in the district of Salt Hill. Just like in London, he would occasionally come to visit even after he married Sarah Appleby. I asked Carol Baxter how he got away with this for years. Were neighbours not suspicious? People didn't
3: know that he was the father because Sarah's story was that he was her old master and she had married his son and his son had gone abroad. So the son used to send money back to his father, the Quaker John Tall, who would then bring it out to her every six weeks or so to help her support herself and the children. And of course, the man turned up every time dressed in his Quaker gear. And he was an older man. I mean, he was about thirty years older than Sarah. So there wasn't any I, I, perhaps people had their suspicions, but I never even got that idea that they really had the suspicions that he might have been the father of the children.
0: But there was clearly strain. Sarah Hart and John Tall argued. She knew he had married someone else. He wasn't affectionate to the children. In fact, they had no idea who he really was.
4: From the accounts of what little Alfred said or was overheard saying about John Tool, doesn't sound like they were familiar with him at all. Doesn't sound like they saw him as a father figure or someone. He was just someone who dropped in, gave money and left.
0: So this was not his second family, he was not a kind father.
4: Little Alfred says, uh, is overheard, saying something along the lines of, you're a very bad man, you're a very naughty man. Mm. So I don't think he was, saw it as, you know, his family on the side. I think he saw it as his mistress and perhaps his two mistakes. And John Tall always
0: wore the Quaker garb on those visits, everywhere, really. That point is important for later, I asked historian Esther Zala about the clothing. What exactly made Quaker clothes unique?
1: So in the time of tall, so the Quaker garb is not, it's not a specific uniform. It's not as distinct as like maybe orthodox or ultra-orthodox Jews would dress today. But it would be um, dark colors, nothing flashy again. Like there's definitions saying no ribbons, no whatever. Like it doesn't really mean very much to us. No adornments. No
0: adornments, yeah. No, no
1: adornments, I mean? yeah okay. Right. So just simple, dark, mo- modest
0: In the early 1840s, John Tall dressed the part of the pious Quaker, which included the clothing. Gerald Fox says that, for a while, Tall seemed to be heading in a positive direction.
1: He was on the straight and narrow path. He didn't need to do criminal things. He didn't need to do fraud or anything. He established himself.
0: Gerald's granddaughter, Meg Edwards, is a little less generous.
4: I think... I have a bit of a different opinion to my grandpa about the kind of person that he was. It's obviously very hard to get an accurate depiction of someone in the 19th century, but I think he was clearly very driven. I think he was very intelligent. I think he was an opportunist. I don't think he was necessarily as scheming as a lot of people would suggest. But I think he, he definitely was seeing things that he wanted to better himself in life. Higher positions, more money
0: men keeping mistresses is obviously nothing new. Historian Angela Buckley says it was almost the norm in Victorian England.
2: It was very common, particularly for high in society, men with high positions in society, to have a mistresses and to keep them out of the way. So he's behaving fairly typically, I would say, from a, uh, a middle-class Victorian gentleman, I guess. That's what he's, how he's styling himself, isn't he? They kept her, Sarah out of the way by moving her to Slough because it's quite a distance.
0: But John Tall continued to visit Sarah Hart. They continued to have their affair. He controlled everything, including her name. Carol Baxter says that Sarah Hart wasn't her real name. So back to, this is Sarah Lawrence, right? Do do you say Lawrence or Hart or do you go back and forth or do we...
3: Look, I just call her Sarah Hart. Her initial name was Lawrence, and then her mother married a Hadler, so she became a Hadler. And the Hart name was, was a name attached by John Tall to hide her true identity.
0: John Tall clearly cared, mostly about himself. And it seems that Sarah Hart wanted more from him. But it wasn't his love she was demanding— It was his money. And John Tall was very angry.
4: I think he saw Sarah as increasingly inconvenient to him.
0: It's not just the anger that's concerning. Meg Edwards says Tall might have felt like he was above the law for much of his life.
4: He was probably quite arrogant, thought he was above the law. Those 14 years in Australia, or those that he was sentenced to anyway, didn't do much to dissuade him from committing further crimes.
0: And that put the people closest to him in a lot of danger. On the next episode of Tenfold More Wicked on Exactly Right.
3: Suddenly, Sarah had gone from being a pawn to being almost a queen. She had started to have a voice and she made that voice clear in her decision to ask him for money. And that was when she became a threat. So that was when everything started to unravel, basically.
4: He gets onto a train from Paddington Station and goes to Salt Hill
3: gets off the train, and he walks to Sarah's place at Salt Hill. People see him. It's January, so yes, it's dark, but there are lights around the railway station. He is distinctive. He is seen. He heads to Sarah's place.
0: If you love a good, real ghost story, my audiobook, The Ghost Club, is available wherever you get your audiobooks. I can't wait to tell you the real story about the world's most famous ghost hunter, who was the head of the world's most famous ghost club, and how he investigated England's most famous haunted house. Please also check out my book, All That Is Wicked, which is a deep dive into the criminal mind. This has been an Exactly Right Tenfold More Media production. Producers Jason Whaling, Alexis Amorosi, and Natalie Wren. Editors Jason Whaling and Kate Winkler-Dawson. Researcher Kate Winkler-Dawson. Sound designer Eric Friend. Composer Curtis Heath. Artwork by Nick Toga. Executive producers Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at TenfoldWarWicked and on Twitter at Tenfold War. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention, especially if it happened in your family, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. Follow Tenfold More Wicked on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.